We're disorganized this morning, huh? Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to our worship service this morning. We are here to connect with the Lord somehow. We've got some music planned that celebrate who God is and His amazing grace. And we're going to hear from Pastor Tim, who's got a word from the Lord that the, He has laid on His heart this week. And, um, and a little heads up. Um, in a little bit, I'm going to, we're going to have a time of participatory prayer, what we call popcorn prayers, where you will get a chance to say a one-sentence, one-breath prayer on a topic that I'll give you. So be prepared for that, and I'll ask you to speak up for that. So we're going to get you in the mood for worshiping. I'll have you stand, if you can, and we're going to just sing a song that is is inviting us to come into the presence of the Lord and to praise Him this morning. So join us if you would. Good morning. If you are new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us this morning as we gather together and to worship God and be together as His people in this place. If you are new, we, we hope you feel welcome and encouraged to be here. Um, we'd invite you to stop by the, the table in the back on your way out and grab a cup of coffee, and we'd come in there to answer any questions you may have about the church. Um, 
there's anything you want to communicate with the church or want to be like on an email list or anything like that, there's a connect card in the seat back in front of you. You can fill that out and drop it in the offering boxes on the back wall. We'd love to be able to connect with you that way as well. As a church, we say often that we want to be about three things. We want to be about reaching people with the gospel, growing to be like Christ, and serving others. And one of the ways that we reach people with the gospel is by supporting various ministries and missionaries, both here locally and throughout the country and throughout the world. And so one of those ministries that we support is WRVM Radio. And so we want to hear this morning just a little bit about what they're doing and why we at the church support them. So I'm going to invite Dave Ogren to come up and he's going to tell us a little bit about some of the, the work that that organization is, is doing. microphone of a 100,000 watt FM station as opposed to being in front of a couple hundred people live. I'll keep my uh, comments brief. On behalf of WRVM, I want to thank this church for its support of Christian radio in the form of the Eagle River slash Three Lakes repeater station, sometimes called a translator station. WRVM over the years has been able and has been blessed, I should say, to have 27 now repeater stations in addition to six full power stations around uh, northeastern Wisconsin and in the Upper Peninsula. So we are thankful for that. Um, I work primarily now over the past 10 years in the engineering department. I'm not on the air much at all anymore. But again, I can't stress enough our thanks to you and the countless hundreds of people that help support the station, which I should say, too, that just recently celebrated its 55th birthday. And we're very thankful for that. Uh, my wife and I were able to spend a, a long weekend in Green Bay to help the station uh, celebrate that fantastic uh, anniversary. 55 years of blessings uh, to the people of our region. Uh, 55 years of helping believers grow through the various programs and music that we air. But the thing that really touches my heart the most is that when people that don't know Christ, for whatever reason or however they become associated or start listening to the station, come to know Christ and look forward to an eternity uh, with him, thanks to the little part that we have played as radio, and if you have played as a, a congregation supporting Christian radio. Right now I have a video. I'll stop talking, and Sherry, you can go ahead and hit it. Falling, don't stop doing the impossible. 
about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. It's about the
Thank you, Brother Dave, for sharing that with us this morning. So now's the time we're going to have a, a chance for you to participate. So here, again, the way this works, we call them popcorn prayers because they're just little popcorns that pop up to God. So one of the things that we do when we come to worship is to give God glory. And I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that in Bible times and in the Bible, the word glory means uh, associated with high status, that we give glory to God and we acknowledge his high status in our lives. And so one of the words that appears often in songs is amazing. And I think all of you have probably used the words, you know, just, I'm just amazed by what God is or what God has done or something that uh, that is amazing about who he is and what he's done. So, so these are one sentence, one breath, prayers, starting with the phrase, Lord, I am amazed by, and then you can say something. Um, speak loud because uh, we, don't, we can't chase you around with a microphone, but um, let's just pray for a couple minutes by you all um, offering these little, uh, a little one-breath prayer to God, acknowledging what amazes you about him, and then we'll worship that amazing God. So why don't I start? Lord, I am amazed by the fact that you extended your grace to a wretch like me. Let's continue in this prayerful way by singing some words that others will put in our, our mouths. If you're able, please stand with us and let's sing together.
kind of coming up in our church life that we want you to be aware of as you gather here. So if you have your bulletin, you'll see these things listed in there. But one is that on October 23rd, we will have a, a child dedication here at the church. So if you want to come and dedicate your child, it's a way for you to ask the church to come alongside you and helping you raise your child. It's up for the church to commit to um, supporting you as you raise children, also like offering our children to, to God and his, his character. If you're interested in that, it'll be October 23rd. Ultimately, 23rd, following the Sunday school hour, we will have what we call Pizza with the Pastors, a chance to sit down with Pastor Ian and myself and eat pizza and hear a little bit more about the church, hear about us. If you have any questions about the church you would like to ask or are new to the church, if you want to get to know us better, the way for you to do, do that. And coming up, Next Sunday, on October 9th, following uh, 4 p.m. in the afternoon, Eric will lead us in a, a hymn sing here at the church. So we'd invite you to come and be a part of that. And then on October 15th, so in two weeks on that Saturday, from 9 to 4 p.m., 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., there's a, a women's conference here at the church. So we're going to watch a short video that kind of promotes that now. Hey there, I'm Priscilla, and I'm excited, as always, to have the opportunity to invite you to join me for Going Beyond Simulcast. Okay, here's what makes it unique. It's a digital opportunity for us to gather together globally. I'm talking about across lines that would normally divide us, not just because we live, you know, a neighborhood away or a couple states away, but even in different countries and continents, different languages, different accents, different streams of the church that are outside of our normal frame of reference. Through the Going Beyond Simulcast, we gather together globally. What an opportunity to form a sisterhood and to be a part of a gathering and have this opportunity to have our lives shifted, our perspectives changed, our hearts reignited with passion for the things of God. That's what the Going Beyond Simulcast is all about. And I can't wait to share it with you. In addition to that, in addition to the things I already mentioned, there's also a number of small groups and Bible studies that are starting soon. In our heart, in all of these things, is to, to provide means for us to grow, to be more like Christ, to provide opportunities for whatever life stage you're at, for you to grow in Christ-likeness. Right? So there's a, a list of upcoming Bible studies and small groups in your bulletin. There are sign-up sheets downstairs for all the small groups and for child dedication and for 
um, Pizza with the Pastors. If you want to register for the Women's Conference, the, the website, tlefc.org slash going beyond, you can register there. Um, that's listed in your bulletin as well. So we invite you to be a part of whatever you feel like you're at, wherever you're at, that would help you grow to be like Christ. We want to invite you to step into those things. We're going to sing a few more songs here in a minute. Before we do that, would you join me in a time of prayer? Father, we, we thank you this morning for this chance to gather. We are truly amazed by what a great God you are, what, a, what an incredible Savior Jesus is. Pray for each of us this morning that we would have the chance to reflect on all that you've done for us, all that Jesus did for us and dying on the cross and that we would take a moment to be truly amazed. We would not take it for granted. We would not write it off. But that we would be truly amazed by what an amazing God you are and what an incredible Savior Jesus is. Father, we acknowledge that even in the midst of hard times, that doesn't change what a great God you are. Think of people in Florida and those affected by hurricane recently who it is going through hard times. It can be hard to see your goodness and see your amazingness in the midst of trials and challenges like that or in the midst of physical pain, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of other challenges. But we acknowledge that no matter what's going on in life, that you are still God. You are still good. And I pray for those who are walking through hardship and difficulty now that you would, this morning, now like help them see your goodness even in the midst of trial. For those who are hurting and suffering in Florida from this hurricane, would you... Give them a sense of your goodness even in the midst of their trial. For those of us who are gathered here who are hurting for whatever reason, would you give them a sense of your goodness even now and the way you walk with us through trial and hardship all to bring about your good purposes. Father, would we see and feel your goodness and your love for us this morning. And when we stand in awe of who you are and all that you've done for us in Jesus. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's continue in this spirit of prayer and worship. If you can stand again, let's continue to worship our Lord.
just think, help us to remember how faithful you are. You are always 
faithful to us. You were always with us. Would we never think you've abandoned us? Would we never forget all you've done for us? Would we remember your faithfulness to us? Would it motivate us? Would it compel us to live lives that bring you honor and bring you glory? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So within, within like 12 years of each other, there's these two stories that take place in Germany that are remarkably similar to one another. So the first is the story of Adolf and Rudolf Dassler. So let's say this starts in, in 1924. And so these, these Dassler brothers, they started a shoe factory in their mother's laundry room. And they started making shoes, right? So they started making primarily athletic shoes. And in 1936, the 12 years after they started the company, they hit a big break. Right? When Adolf, who went by Addy, right, he was approached, or he approached the American sprinter Jesse Owens. Right? And he persuaded Jesse Owens to wear a pair of Dassler shoes during the Olympics that year. Right? And so there's Jesse Owens, those are the shoes he wore. They look insanely uncomfortable, but they worked for Jesse Owens. And he ended up, as you may recall, or you may know, he ended up winning four gold medals during those 1936 Berlin Olympics. Meanwhile, other athletes who were wearing Dassler shoes went on to win an additional three gold medals, five silver medals, and one bronze medal during those Olympics. So overnight, Dassler shoes became an international success. And they exploded and sold 200,000 pairs of shoes right, before the outbreak of World War II. Right. However, at some point during World War II, then the, the Dassler brothers got into a huge fight. And no one can quite agree on what exactly the source of the fight was, but whatever the reason, whatever caused the fight, it caused the brothers to have such friction that they decided to divide the company into two separate companies in 1948. They divide the companies, and if there's one thing Germans love, right, it's taking two words, smashing them together, and making one new word. Right? And so Addy Dassler formed his company, and he called it Adidas. Right? We say Adidas, but it's Adidas. Right? Adi, his name, Das, Dassler, Adidas. Right? Rudolf Dassler went on to name his company initially Ruda, but that didn't sell very well. So they renamed it to Puma. Right? And so out of this fight, two large shoe companies are born. Looking for the Dassler brothers, like the town that their company is headquartered, which is this. I'm not going to try to pronounce that. <laughs> That's the name of the German town. And for them, like, look, it was divided by a river. Right? And so Adolf set up Adidas on the, on the north side of the river. And Rudolf set up Puma on the south side of the river. And the rivalry between these two companies in that town was intense. Employees of the two companies like, wouldn't even talk to one another. Like, there was like, separate Adidas bars and separate Puma bars. There were separate Adidas bakeries and Puma bakeries. Like, they just didn't commingle. In fact, like, the town got the nickname, the Town of Bent Necks. Because people would constantly stare down people's shoes 
trying to figure out what side they were on. Right, the brothers are even buried on opposite ends of the town cemetery. Right? Just, there's a deep strife. Right, so that's, that's story one. Story two, it involved the brothers, again, Carl and Theo Albrecht. And so they, they jointly ran a, a grocery store together. It was headquartered in Essen, Germany in the 1940s and 50s. And the name of their store, again, shows the German love of smashing two words together. So their last name was Albrecht. And so the name of the store was a combination of their last name, Albrecht, and the German word for discount, which is sounds like discount. And so you smash Albrecht and discount together, and you get Aldi. Albrecht discount, Aldi. And then in 1960, there's this big, they had this big fight again. And in this case, the fight over whether or not they should sell cigarettes in their stores. Not because of any like, concern over health or anything, but because one of the brothers thought that selling cigarettes would attract shoplifters. So they fought over this, and they couldn't agree until they, again, they decided to draw a line through the middle of Essen and then through the rest of Germany, and, and divide the business. And at that time, they had about 300 stores. And so Theo took over all the stores north of the line, while Carl took over all the stores south of the line. And after the split, Theo's stores were called Aldi Nord, for Aldi North, and Carl's were called Aldi Sud, for Aldi South. And that, that agreement still exists today. This is a map, present-day map, of all the Aldi Nord stores in Germany and all the Aldi Sud stores stores in Germany. There's a clear line. They actually call it the Aldi Equator that runs through the middle of, of Germany. But as they expanded into international markets, sometimes they had to change names to make them more fit with that culture. Right? So in the United States, Aldi sued to the southern Aldis. Right? They're officially known as Aldi US. Right? You should probably know it as Aldi. But you, may not also, but you may not know right, that Aldi Nord also exists in the United States. It's just that it's a new name, right? You know it as Trader Joe's. Right? So they, they, again, two large international brands that come out of this brotherly conflict. I just find these, these similarities so interesting. Right? Within 12 years of one another, in the same country, their brothers fight and their split causes founding of four still well-known large international companies. But I find it interesting as well that like, these brothers all reached a point where they like, came to an issue where they were diametrically opposed to one another. Right? There, was, there was no compromise. There was no middle ground. The only course of action was to split the companies. And it, it's sad when, when family reaches that point. Right? But of course, like family conflict is, is all too common. Right? Like we're, we're quickly approaching the holiday season and right? some of you are already dreading the, interaction, the interaction you're going to have with like, crazy Uncle Joe or whatever. Right? Like family conflict causes all kinds of, of strife. Right? And nothing's more, com- like more likely to cause family conflict than, than talking about two topics, right? religion and politics. Or as, as Weird Al Yankovic once tweeted, right? if you want to avoid heated arguments, never discuss religion, politics, or whether the toilet paper roll should go over or under. Right? Right? But those two issues, politics and religion, they're the things that cause all kinds of conflict. Right? 
But if you really want to cause problems, you really want to cause strife, right? talk about them both at the same time. Right? And, and let the teacher of the law in Israel understand that talking about both of those things simultaneously is going to cause problems. Right? And so they're on this quest to get Jesus to say something that will get him in trouble. And so to do that in today's passage, they ask him a question about how religion and politics intersect. And they believe that because they ask this question, right, and no one can answer that question well, they, like, they must have him trapped. Surely they were convinced, like, Jesus' answer is going to alienate someone and get Jesus in trouble. But as we'll see in just a minute as we read the passage, look, Jesus once again is able to, to see through their scheme and avoid their traps. So to say, let's read this passage together. We're in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 19. We read this. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately. Because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. We looked at that parable last week, right, that Jesus had condemned the Pharisees, condemned the teachers of the law, so now they want him arrested, they want him done away with, they want him killed. Right? So they were looking for a way to trap him. So verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity, and he said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. That the reason that religion and the reason that politics within a family can be so fraught is that it's rooted in the fact that we're having this conversation with family, right? We can, we can sort of understand if strangers or people who are raised in different contexts than us, if they see things differently. But family, like, especially close family, like, surely, like, they, they should see things the same way we do. Like, they should, they should be like us. They experience all the same things, right? So it gets us extra angry when it's family who disagrees with us because, like, well, surely they should agree with us. They're family after all. And, and the conflict here between, between, the Jew, between Jesus and the religious leaders in Israel, and it's ultimately a family conflict. They're all Jewish. They're all children of Abraham. And so for the religious leaders, they think, like, Jesus, you should be seeing things the same way as us. You claim to be a faithful Jew. Like, why don't you see this, Jesus? But both Jesus and the religious leaders have a very clear idea of how life should be lived in response to the Bible's teaching about God. Right? We might call that like an, an ethic. Right? That's what an ethic is. It's a, it's a set of principles about how you live your life based on how you see the world and what you believe about God. Right? We all have some kind of ethic. We all have some kind of set of principles that guide how we live life in the world. 
So Jesus had an ethic, and the religious leaders had an ethic. And those two ethics, their ethics came in severe conflict with one another. In fact, what we see in this passage, and and throughout all of Jesus' ministry, is this. Jesus' ethic, what I'm going to call an ethic of grace, is diametrically opposed to the religious leader's ethic, what I'm going to call an ethic of self-righteousness. Like Those two things can't coexist. There's no compromise between an ethic of grace and an ethic of self-righteousness. So they, they come in conflict with one another. Jesus' life is all about showing grace to others. Whereas the religious leaders are all about living a life where, where they're seen by others as good people. Like That's their primary motivation, to be seen by others as good people. They're, they're self-righteous. And this passage shows that when those two ways of life come together, they conflict in significant ways. And the first difference we see between the two is that an ethic of self-righteousness seeks to condemn others in order to build up the self, but an ethic of grace seeks the best in others. So again, verses 19 and 20. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because... They knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. But keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Right? They sent spies who pretended to be sincere, hoping to catch him in something he said. Like, they're just hoping to catch him so they can hand him over to the authorities to be arrested and ultimately killed. And so in recent years, like the term like, gotcha journalism right, has gained popularity, has been used widely. Right? It's a practice of, of journalists who ask questions that are just designed to entrap the person they're interviewing into making a statement or a, a claim that's damaging to that person. Trying to trap them, right? We see this all the time, especially when like a reporter of one political persuasion interviews someone with an opposite political persuasion. But what Jesus is facing here is the ultimate gotcha question, because he's not asking the question just to make him look bad. He's asking the question to get him to say something that will get him killed. That's that's their goal here. like that's what they want to happen. They want him to say something that will get him killed. So they go to him. They pretend to be sincere. We're going to pretend. We're going to act kind. We're going to act nice. But our goal is to ask him a question and hope he'll say something that gets himself killed. So these spies, right, they're, not, they're not interested in actually hearing what Jesus had to say. They're not interested in having an honest conversation or an honest debate They're simply there to find a way to criticize Jesus and make him look bad and get him in trouble. Because, if they can make Jesus look bad, then they look better. That's how self-righteousness thinks. I will tear others down if it builds me up. I will make others look bad if it makes me feel good about myself. And that's what the religious leaders are doing. But on the other hand, an ethic of, of grace... Exemplified by Jesus, seeks the best in others. An ethic of grace chooses not to focus on, on the failures of others, but instead it, it sees the good work that God can do through a person, even 
as they're struggling. That's what, that's what Jesus does for all of us. Think of, think of the, the Samaritan woman at the well. Right? She's, been, she's been married five times. She's living with, a, with another man who's not her husband. And Jesus shows up and He speaks to her. And He reveals to her the fact that He is the Messiah. He shows her grace and she goes away believing. You just imagine how that conversation would have gone if, if Jesus had been self-righteous. Like He... First of all, probably would never would have talked to her in the first place. Right? But if he had, he would, have, he would have condemned her for her sin, for, for even trying to talk to him. He would have condemned her for her lifestyle. and She would have been repulsed and driven away. But Jesus shows her grace. Right? Doesn't excuse her sin, but he shows her grace and converts with her and reveals himself to her. Right? And the same thing is true with how he interacts with each one of us. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows every sin you've ever committed, everything you've ever done wrong. He knows that you are not worthy to come before the Father. He's seen it all. He knows what you've done. And yet, right, that the Father and Jesus are in heaven, and it's time for them to enact the Father's plan of the Son coming to earth. Jesus doesn't say, God, you want me to give up the glories of of heaven and go down to be with those dirty, wicked sinners? No way. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say they don't deserve it. Instead, we read this about how Jesus responded. That Jesus was in the very nature of God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God the Son made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. He, he died on a cross for you when you didn't deserve it. When you were his enemy, when you were at war with God, he died for you. Like that's an ethic of grace. To show extreme, sacrificial love for those who in no way deserve it. And so the question then is, like, which ethic better reflects how you interact with the world and with others? Like, are you always trying to catch people when they fail? Like, are you on the, constantly on the lookout, looking for and, and picking at and trying to find ways to criticize other people? Are you always trying to make others feel bad so you can build yourself up? Are you trying to highlight areas where you're better than someone else? Do you have this ethic of self-righteousness? Or do you treat others with grace? You allow the fact that Jesus didn't write you off when you sinned to motivate you then to forgive and to sacrificially love those around you, even when they fail. Are you able, even when someone does something differently than you would, to assume that their intentions are, are good? Do you show grace to them or do you show self-righteousness and judgment towards those who 
do things differently than you. An ethic of grace, right? It, it seeks the best in others. And it does it with honest conviction. And seeking, seeking the best in others does not mean right, false flattery. It does not mean false praise. Like that's what the spies do here in verse 21. Right? The spies questioned Jesus. And they said, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is upright. That you do not show partiality, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, in one sense, like what they say is entirely true. Right? Jesus does teach what is in accordance with the truth. Jesus does speak what is right. Like all that's true. But it's also pretty obvious right, that the spies don't believe it. And if they did believe it, then they won't be trying to trap him in what he's doing. So they're, they're not speaking with honest conviction. They're speaking with, with empty, false flattery. I once had a, a pastor in Louisville who said right, that the flattery and gossip are, are two sides of the same coin. Right? Like gossip is saying behind someone back what you wouldn't say to their face. And flattery is saying to someone's face what you wouldn't say behind their back. And like these, these, these spies here, right? they're saying to Jesus' face what they would never say about him to their religious leader friends. They're, they're false flattery. They're saying things they don't believe. They're only saying these things because it, it helps their position. They're only saying these things because they're hoping that it will get Jesus to say something that, that damages his credibility and therefore makes them look better. That's what, that's what self-righteousness does. It'll do whatever is required to make the self look better. If it means falsely praising someone else to gain favor, then fine, great. And that's such a common practice. Like We have all kinds of words and phrases for it. Like, in school, you're a teacher's pet, or you're, you're a suck-up, or like, you're, a, you're a bootlicker, or like, other less appropriate terms I won't say here, but you know them. Right? Like, it's the practice of like, just doing whatever is required to make yourself look good and get in the good graces of people who it's beneficial to you to be in the good graces of. On the other hand, self-righteousness also says, right, if you can make yourself look good by tearing somebody else down, do that too. Right? Spread rumor behind their back. Turn other people against them. Like, go for it if it makes you look good. Whatever it takes to make yourself look good, do it. That's the, the rallying cry of self-righteousness. But Jesus, in his ethic of grace, like, never does that. He always speaks with honest conviction. And he does it in a way that that's gentle and loving and, and kind. When Jesus encounters sinners throughout his ministry, which is often, like, he never excuses their sin. He never tells them, oh, it's, it's okay, it's not a big deal. But he's able, able to tell them right, with, with loving, kind, gentle honesty to encourage them to turn away from their sin. Because right? he, he wants genuinely what is best for them. He's willing to forgive them while also telling them to turn away from their sin. And Jesus 
graciously, kindly, lovingly encounters those who sin. He doesn't condemn them for it. He doesn't chastise them for it. He gently invites them to turn away from their sin and to turn to Him. In fact, right, the only the only people that Jesus ever really seems to speak harshly to are the self-righteous, are the Pharisees and the religious leaders and those who think that they are better than others. Those are the ones who receive Jesus' harsh words. But those who are aware of their sin, those who are aware of their brokenness, Jesus speaks to with love and with grace while still not excusing their sin. Speaking, speaking truth, he speaks truth and he speaks kindness. And those two things, speaking truth and kindness, are not mutually exclusive propositions. Sometimes we use speaking truth as a justification for speaking like a jerk. But you can speak the truth with kindness and with love. They're not mutually exclusive. So the question is, as you speak to others, as you interact with others, do you speak, do you converse with, a, with an agenda of, of self-promotion and of making yourself look good and using flattery and gossip if required to promote yourself? Like, or do you speak with gracious, loving, honest conviction? Do you speak to others with a desire to, to point them to the love and forgiveness of Jesus because you want what's best for them? Or not? Or do you speak in a way that encourages them to live the life Jesus calls them to live? Or do you speak in a way that promotes yourself? <clears throat> and I think of grace, right? It speaks with, with honest conviction. And Jesus demonstrates that in, in how he responds to the question that is designed to trap him. Despite the fact that he knows it's a trap. Luke tells us that he knew it was a trap, and yet he still responds with honesty. And as he responds with honesty, he demonstrates that an ethic of grace also accepts divinely appointed authority. So the spies ask the question, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And it's not hard to see how this is a dangerous trap. Like, Jesus is asked this question in the temple as Passover is fast approaching. And so there are Jews from all over Israel converging on the temple who would have been present as Jesus answers this question. And many of those Jews who were arriving at the temple, they would have been bitter and angry about the Roman occupation of Israel. They would have been especially bitter about having to pay taxes to this occupying force. So Jesus answered the question by saying, yeah, go ahead, like, it's right, pay taxes to Caesar. He risks turning the crowd against him. But of course, if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, well, then he gives the religious leaders what they want, which is a reason to turn him over to the Roman authorities to be killed for insurrection. So it's not hard to see how this would have been a trap. But, but Jesus, in, in typical Jesus fashion, answered in a way that foils their plans. Looking again at verse 23 to 25. 
Jesus saw through their duplicity, and he said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So Jesus' point here is like, like the, the very fact that you're carrying around Roman money in your pockets or whatever they had instead of pockets, like the fact that you're using Roman money like it's a sign that you've chosen to participate in Caesar's fear of influence. You've already submitted yourself to Caesar's authority by accepting his money. And so Caesar does indeed have a right to tax his own money. Caesar has been placed in a position of authority, in fact, by God. Caesar is there because of God's appointment. And an ethic of grace accepts divinely appointed authority. But an ethic of, gra- of self righteousness can become so self focused that we think we know better even than God. Like, you can say, like, sure, God placed that person in the position of authority, but, like, but I see that person's failures. Like, I, I know that person's negatives apparently better than God does, and so I know that I shouldn't submit to him, even though God placed him in that position of authority. Right? But an ethic of grace acts the way that, that Jesus teaches here, and that Paul reflects in Romans 13.1, when he writes, Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. You may hear that, you may read that and think, like, that's well and good for you to say, Paul, but like, you don't know how terrible some of our politicians are. Like, if you knew, Paul, you wouldn't actually say that. Paul wrote that under Caesar, who was actively killing Christians. He knew what he was saying. Nothing we experience here trumps what Paul experienced then. And he says, submit to the governing authorities. There is no authority that that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, even the Caesar who's killing Christians. If you think that the wrong person's in power, in whatever context maybe, either your God is so weak that he can't handle putting the right person in power, or you think you know better than God. That's not to say, clearly, that the people who are in power throughout the world are, are good people. That's not what I'm saying. It's not hard to watch some of the actions around the world or even here and think like, how is that person in power? Right? Like, it's not to say right, that people who are in power are, are good people. But then again, the point of the Bible is that there are no good people. And what we learn from all this is that like, God's purposes, God's plan, God's goal for the universe is far bigger than anything that has to do with geopolitical boundaries. And oftentimes, like the church 
throughout history has done best when it's heavily persecuted and done worst when it's gained political influence. But the church is doing great in Rome. As though it's being persecuted, as if it's being killed, the Christians are being tortured. The church is doing great, it was growing rapidly. And then Constantine shows up and he makes Christianity the, the official religion of the Roman Empire. And things go downhill in a hurry. Once it becomes socially and politically expedient to be a Christian, right, the results for the church are disastrous throughout history. You see it in the Middle Ages when like, the Pope gains political power. Like, it, it never goes well. Right, conversely, Here's the list of the ten countries right now where Christianity is growing the fastest. Nepal, a majority Hindu country. China, a majority non-religious country that actively persecutes Christians. The United Arab, United Arab Emirates, a majority Muslim country. Four, Saudi Arabia, a majority Muslim country. Qatar, a majority Muslim country. Oman, a majority Muslim country. Yemen, a majority Muslim country. Mongolia, a majority Buddhist country. Cambodia, a majority Buddhist country. And Bahrain, a majority Muslim country. Ten countries where the Christianity is growing the fastest right now. I'm a little nervous saying this. I'm going to step on some toe, but I think it's important for us to hear. Like the dream of America being any kind of special Christian nation is a dangerous and anti-biblical dream. And that view is common, right? Jerry Falwell once said, the idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. Well, that's not true. It's affirmed by Jesus in Luke 20. America has never been, and nor should it strive to be, like the Christian's own country, as Jerry Fowler puts it. Right? It's, America is not the new Israel. The whole point of what Jesus came to do was to expand the idea of who God's people are beyond political boundaries. Paul says in Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You're all one in Christ Jesus. You are a citizen of heaven and the kingdom of God first, and of America second. And to be clear, it would be great if America was full of Christians, like everywhere you looked. That would mean that the church is doing its job of preaching the gospel and advancing the kingdom. We should want America to be full of Christians. And yes, the Christians should, should vote their God-given consciousness and to vote for people they think would be most God-honoring in leadership. We should not hold on to this dream of America as some kind of unique Christian nation. And we should not, importantly, refuse to submit to authority that God has placed in our government just because we don't agree with them on certain things. Unless, important, right? unless those authorities ask us to do something unbiblical, then yes, by all means, resist. 
We should pay our taxes. We should obey laws, even laws we don't agree with, as long as they're not openly anti-biblical. Jesus commands us. Right? He shows us. He displays for us right, that an ethic of grace accepts divinely appointed authority and makes clear that those in authority have been divinely appointed. And so like, the way we actually apply this day-to-day life and how we wrestle with the fact that there are sometimes bad people in leadership can be hard and so like be happy to have that conversation during during crushing, like what that actually looks like. So that'll be ten forty five in here. We'll gather together, I'll answer any questions you may have about how I see this, because I know it's it can be challenging. But if we're gonna be a people who as we claim through our statement of faith, who we claim as evangelicals, like our hallmark is that we take the Bible as our ultimate authority. And Paul writes in Romans 13, right? everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. There are no authority except that which God has established. Jesus says, render to God the things that are God, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Those words are in the same book as all our favorite Bible verses. And we should take them just as seriously. If we have an ethic of grace, we can show grace towards those who disagree with us on political issues. We can show grace towards our leaders who view things differently than we do sometimes. And we're able to have this ethic of grace because Jesus displayed it for us. By going to the cross, He showed us what forgiveness looks like for those who are actively opposed to you. You were sinning, you were in rebellion against God, and yet God sent His Son, Jesus, to come to the earth to die in your place. Not because you deserved it, not because you thought the right things on political issues, not because anything. You didn't deserve any of it. And Jesus came and He died on the cross for you. But by believing in Him, you can look forward to an eternity in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, where there will never be any question about whether the leader, whether the governor is right or wrong, because the king will be God Himself. If, if Jesus did that for you on the cross, if He came for you when you were totally unworthy, then surely we can treat those who disagree with us with the same kind of grace and love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, for being a God who has purposes that are far bigger and far grander than we can imagine. For being a God who has purposes that 
extend beyond national borders, regarding a God that has purposes that extend beyond my momentary happiness, for being a God who has a plan to, to make all things right. Above all, we thank you for being a God who has shown us grace in Jesus. We confess that we are sinful, we are self-righteous, we are proud, we are egotistical, and yet, despite the fact that we were entirely unworthy, you sent Jesus to come step into this world where he would be constantly badgered by those who want to trap him, those who want to get him in trouble, those who want ultimately to kill him. And yet, Jesus, you came. Because you loved us. You desired a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, for us to be restored to a right relationship with God. We we thank you for the grace shown to us through Jesus. Father, I pray as we go from here, we would go showing grace to others, that we would go living out our lives with an ethic of grace, with a, with a life that's motivated by being gracious and not by a life that's motivated by being self-righteous. Whether you help us to seek the best in others, to point them to you and the work you can do in and through them. You help us to not tear others down and make ourselves feel better, but to encourage and edify others. And above all, God, would we constantly live with a fresh reminder of all that Jesus did for us. And would we, day by day, that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to convict us and conform us, would we, day by day, become more and more like Jesus. Would we see your kingdom advance? Would we see your name glorified? It's the work you're doing in our lives. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go from here, would you go with an attitude, with a heart, with a desire to live out an ethic of grace? You are dismissed. Thank you.